Hello, and welcome to Weekend Watchlist, a look at what's screening and streaming brought to you by The Letterbox Show. I'm Mitchell back again. He's Slim. Hi. And together we'll dig through what's dropping this weekend, last weekend, recent trends on Letterbox, and we'll also take a peek at our own watch list, all under 30 minutes or your money back. I really keep sending in that money. I know it's kind of weird to, you know, DM it directly to me other than, you know, something official Letterbox, just sending it right to my inbox. But keep, keep sending in that money. It's really important. Keep doing that. Your Venmo has been popping off the last few weeks. It's just flying off and it's going, it's all to a good cause. (laughs) It's tax season, so it is for a good cause. It certainly is tax season. Before we get to this weekend's movies, we should mention that this episode is brought to you by Neon, whose film Petite Maman is in select theaters April 22nd. And not to pump up that movie too much, but both Mitchell and myself gave it five stars. Mm. Celine Siama's follow-up to Portia of Lady on Fire is the uniquely emotional Petite Maman, a story of wonder, innocence, childhood, memories, and connecting with loved ones. We gave it five stars, also five stars from The Guardian, who called the film Spellbinding, a moving jewel of a film. Vogue described it as a marvel, which is pretty big praise. But if you don't want to take, you know, those hooligans' words for it, you can (laughs) get the esteemed words of myself and Slim from our Letterboxd reviews. Slim described the film as beautiful, He said, Nellie, the main character, experiences something out of my dreams. Celine Siama is a god. And from my review, I said, sometimes a film comes along that feels like it was made specifically for you for this exact moment in your life. Not sure I'll ever be able to put into words how much this film means to me. But for now, I'll say that it holds a very special place in my heart, which still holds true. I don't know how to put into words what Petite Maman means to me, but I mean, it's a really, really special film. So you can add this movie to your watch list if it isn't there already. Follow the Neon Rated HQ account on Letterboxd and make plans to see this Petite Maman. And our thanks to Neon for their support. Bless you, Neon. We're always here for you. Mm. Now, we teased it. This is a giant app. We have Fantastic Beast 3, aka Harry Potter 11, Duel, Paris 13th District. And later in the show, we'll get into some recent physical releases. And once again, we will shuffle. Uh, once again, we will shuffle our watch list. But first, this big weekend, Fantastic Beasts: The Secrets of Dumbledore. What are they? What are those secrets? <laughs> What's he got? <laughs> What's David Yates got cooked up for us this time? Uh, in an effort to thwart Grindelwald's plan of raising pure blood wizards to rule over all non-magical beings, Albus Dumbledore enlists his former student, Newt Scamander, who agrees to help, though he's unaware of the dangers that lie ahead. Lines are drawn as love and loyalty are tested. David Yates, he's directed like 100 Harry Potter movies by the time this comes out. He's done most of them. How how does he do it, Mitchell? How does David Yates do it? I think, you know, when the money's rolling in, you just just keep keep putting them out. (laughs) (laughs) David Yates' Venmo is popping off right now for these movies. Me and David Yates, we're really competing. We're really competing to see who can get the most. (laughs) So what do you think about the Fantastic Beasts franchise? I I think that they brought in David Cloves to co-write uh, because David has written previous Harry Potter's movies. So maybe they're going to write the old ship here for Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, Clo- Close has kind of been out of it. He hasn't done, he didn't do the first two Fantastic Beasts, but he wrote all of the Harry Potter movies other than Order of the Phoenix. So it definitely feels like, I mean, obviously the the previous Fantastic Beasts film didn't do as well as they were expecting critically or financially. I feel like it was, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the first uh, like rotten movie on Rotten Tomatoes or at least the r- lowest rated 
uh, Harry Potter movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. So clearly something's not quite right on the ship. So maybe, you know, bringing clothes back in is kind of the, the magic, you know, potion to get this going right. Certainly they dropped one uh, maybe problematic element that was gemming up some controversy with Johnny Depp. They mm -hmm. replaced him with our beloved Mads Mikkelsen, which, you know, pairing Mads and Jude Law, maybe that'll bring some people back in. But it is it is kind of that question of where they can go from here, where, they're, where they've been going to begin with. Yeah. I mean, with the... You know, they they planned this, they announced very early on that they were planning this as a five-film series, right? And then after the last film didn't do so well, things shifted a little bit to where maybe this is going to be the last one. And that's kind of the question that I have is, you know, is the is the ultimate secret of Dumbledore that this is really the last movie <laughs> in the franchise? <laughs> yeah, it's so strange. So this is on 36,000 watch lists on Letterboxd and... It is kind of a bummer. I mean, how many problematic elements can one franchise have before it's maybe trying to wrap things up a bit? Yeah. I will say, you know, I, I, I'm going through watching the Harry Potter movies with my friends and I was rereading some of the Harry Potter books. Man, those books are so good. <laughs> going back to read those things. Those are the memories that uh, no one, no writer or actor can take away from me or us those memories. That's very, that's very true. Yeah. I mean, I think especially for, for my generation, I'm, you know, 31. So like that was very formative reading those books kind of growing up. And I, they're trying, they're trying to suck everything that they can out of, you know, the franchise, but I, you know, maybe it's time to let it go. But at the same time, maybe, I mean, maybe people will be into this. Maybe there's things that they can do, but this has just always been such a weird franchise where it's like, you mentioned Newt Scamander, you know, being brought Dumbledore, bring Newt Scamander back in. And it's like, do people even remember that Eddie Redmayne is supposedly the lead of this franchise? Like what, what is a fantastic beast at this point anyway? The first film kind of was, <laughs> you know, at least a little bit about the beast. And now it's just... Grindelwald, Dumbledore, who Catherine Watterson was a main character in, you know, the first two films. And she's apparently written out of this one, which may mm -hmm. or may not have something to do with her speaking out about the, you know, person who wrote the Harry Potter movies, who we will not necessarily name here. Right. Yeah. It just feels like, I mean, the, the Ezra Miller thing happening too. It just feels like such a messy kind of situation. But I mean, ho hopefully they can get, you know, a, a solid movie out of it. If, if people, you know, want to seek it out, obviously, 37,000 watch lists, people are still interested in it and want for it to be good. The Fantastic Beasts were the problematic characters we left along the way yeah, on, exactly. the, on our journey. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's let's shift away from the wizarding world and into another, uh, a more unusual kind of world with the film Duel. This is the new film from writer and director Riley Stearns, who people may know from Faults or The Art of Self-Defense. His latest film is on 15,000 watch lists. It premiered at Sundance this year. Karen Gillan stars in it as a terminally ill woman who opts for a cloning procedure to ease her loss on her friends and family. When she makes a miraculous recovery, her attempts to have her clone decommissioned fail and lead to a court-mandated duel to the death. I'd like mm. to start talking about this with a review from Letterboxd member Rezondo, who said that the film gripped him from the super tense opening scene to the very end. It's a refreshing take on a dystopian story with Stern's signature deadpan humor making the film so entertaining. Now, I believe you've seen this film as well, right? What did you think of it? Do you agree with Rezondo? Yeah, you saw it at Sundance. I saw it this week in my dank basement, and <laughs> I, I liked it. I, I fit this into the lo-fi sci-fi right. vibes where, 
you know, very low key. And this was a very much a slow burn. And believe it or not, I mean, two, I've watched two Karen Gillan movies in two weeks, which is more of her than I've seen the last two, three years, mm. you know, of any like non Marvel anything. Yeah. So I liked it. I love the kind of slow burns, minimal sci fi story that at the end of the movie, I can be like, oh, that was pretty cool. And I rated it three stars. I'm all in on three star lo fi sci fi movies. Yeah, me. there's. I like. I like these kind of. I do like these kind of um, sci fi movies where it is. I mean, the the lo fi thing that you know you've you've expressed really liking before, where it's not trying to be huge. It exists in sort of this like slightly left of center world. The person that kept coming to my mind while watching it was Yorgos Lanthimos, the you know Greek filmmaker who did The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer and Dogtooth, where like things the rules of this world are just kind of like off and it has that similar kind of deadpan humor. Karen Gillan, I think, fits it well. Aaron Paul is also in the film mm -hmm. as somebody that Karen Gillan goes to to try and train her to, you know, be ready for this duel against herself. And I feel like Aaron Paul fits the tone of the movie extremely well. Like, he's really funny and just really steals scenes. There's this... um great dance sequence with the two of them in it where like his his deal with her is like I'll teach you to to duel and be ready for the action combat if you teach me how to dance he just wants to learn how to dance <laughs> and you know they get this little bop going to little john and the east side boys millennial anthem get low and it's like one of my favorite scenes of the year for sure is just getting into that groove and yeah it, it's it's a lot of fun i think and it's definitely a movie that is not um, the kind of movie that you're going to be getting with like a Fantastic Beast, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's totally <laughs> opposite end of the spectrum. So this is in theaters, 15,000 watch lists. So a lot of other people are anxious to watch this as well. All right, so we mentioned Celine Siam at the top of the show and she helped write our next film with a few others. And that's Paris 13th District, directed by Jacques Odiard, written uh, by Celine Siam and Leia Mizius. So this is theaters and video on demand 15,000 watch lists, so very eager movie for people to see. Emily meets Camille, who is attracted to Nora, who crosses paths with Amber. Three girls and a boy, they're friends, sometimes lovers, and often both. Mitchell, what's your vibe on this film? I So we've both been able to see this film as well, and I, I really like it. I'm a huge fan of Jacques Odiard. He has made films like A Prophet um, from 2010, Rust and Bone with Marion Cotillard and Matthias Schoenartz, and like Read My Lips. Uh, he won the Palme d'Or for Deepon in 2015. Most recently, he directed The Sisters Brothers, the kind of comedic Western with Jake Gyllenhaal and Joaquin Phoenix and Riz Ahmed and John C. Riley from a few years back. And most of his films are these kind of like muscular, very masculine movies. And Paris 13th District is definitely kind of a new direction for him. And, you know, he's bringing in these female co-writers with him for the first time. And I think that you really get that kind of essence from that new collaboration. There is a different kind of energy with it. It is lighter, more comedic. He's drawing from Eric Romare, who we're all, you know, huge fans here. You've talked about Romare's The Green Ray on the Letterboxd mm -hmm. show before. Mm -hmm. And it definitely brings a different kind of energy from ODR, but he really fits it well. And I think that that tone is really well established. It's such a conversational 
kind of movie that has this kind of free-flowing effortlessness to it that's going through these multiple different characters and just weaving their stories, you know, in and out of each other. What did what did you think about Paris 13th District? I liked it a lot. And it's based on several comics from a very accomplished cartoonist, Adrian Tomina. Yeah. And Optic Nerve, you know, people might recognize that work. And also from The New Yorker. So very distinguished cartoonist. And in my viewing, it actually did feel like a very indie, low-key comic strip graphic novel. Mm. So like some of these stories, the way they intersected and very... You know, there's not a ton that happens in this film. So all the movies, the the history of this director, you know, to be frank, aren't usually my jam. Mm. So when you sit down to watch this French film, it's about the interpersonal relationships with these characters. And I particularly loved the Amber storyline uh, from this film. That was probably my favorite aspect of the film itself. And I mean, I started tearing up at a certain point of that storyline towards the end of the movie. I loved it. yeah. Amber Amber's character develops this uh, kind of yeah relationship with Nora, this friendship, this bond, and it is they you know Amber's a cam girl in the movie, and the relationship that they develop is often through the screen, through these video calls, and there is this kind of amusing irony over the fact that the most touching, most honest relationship in the film is the one with the people who aren't even be able to physically be together for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that certainly speaks to kind of doing a film like this in the modern era and what those observations are, even if they're not the most groundbreaking, substantial observations. It really is acutely kind of quietly observed in these really touching ways. Alicia reviewed this film uh, during the London Film Festival 2021, Alicia Haddock, uh, these characters are some of the most human I've seen all festival, with every acting performance and line of dialogue hiding layers of regrets and hopes and journeys long and winding, many of which remain unexplored but fulfilled by the ending. So high recommendation for, for folks who want to check out this film. That will take care of the, you know, the current releases for this week. So now let's switch to taking a little look back at the previous week, how the movies that came out last weekend fared, some physical releases and what our community is saying. Remember, if you want your review or list potentially featured on an upcoming episode of Weekend Watchlist, just add the tag hashtag Weekend Watchlist. Slim, I know you are looking you were looking at the hashtag on Letterboxd. You 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 know found some reviews from last week's releases that you wanted to shout out that use the tag Weekend Watchlist. So why don't you go ahead and shout them out? I did. I just want to give everyone props for using the tag. It's fun to see the new reviews pipe uh, pipe in from everyone hitting the theaters. Uh, Darth Gnome saw Memoria. Memoria uh, and left a review. So very high praise for this film. It's funny. I've seen high praise for this movie, and then some of my friends went to see it and maybe weren't expecting. <laughs> the Memoria experience. (laughs) No, let's just say they did not love it. Uh, But Darth Gnome uh, wrote, as soon as I start throwing around the word slow when describing what Memoria is, it's an instant off switch for most people. I don't know why slow has become a derogatory word. Maybe it's a societal issue with our collective attention spans, but asking someone to watch a movie where there are static shots that last five minutes on end is a hard sell. I've said it before, but slow cinema is like a second language. It so certainly that's a is. Positive review on Letterboxd. One movie that could never be described as slow cinema is Sonic the Hedgehog 2 with Jeffrey Chen. The movie ends up being long because its climax is so stretched out, a problem that Memoria does not have, by the way, but otherwise had one job to do and did it. And if it's going to be a franchise directed at kids as opposed to teens, whom I think was the Sonic game's original audience, the best I can say is that it works well as such. The kids in the theater laughed a lot and 
my own kids loved it. So Jeffrey, you know, shouting out Sonic, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. One last Sonic review from my dear friend, Proto. After I acclimated to the lingering odor of BO emanating out of my local theater, I had a great time. <laughs> uh, that's what you can't get at home. You that's, go to the theater and experience those things. That's what I'm missing <laughs> from the theatrical is missing from that experience. <laughs> Should we talk quickly about the RoboCop 4K that we both purchased? I think we kind of have to talk about the RoboCop 4K. I mean, your favorite movie of all time. We both grabbed mm-hmm. the 4K. So, I mean, let's 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 get into it. How is the 4K experience for you with RoboCop? 4K is fun. So I fired it up and watched a little bit of the 4K transfer. And, you know, it's an older movie, so there's going to be some grain and noise in the 4K transfer, but blown up, it's gorgeous. So I actually fired the bonus features and watched the edited for TV version, mm. which is included on one of the discs, and I had an amazing time. That's the version I watched. I felt like I was transported back to PHL 17, <laughs> Philadelphia, seeing all those edits. It was it was hilarious. There is there is something special about that, and that's, some, that's something that the kids these days on the streaming services, you know, they're, they're not getting that, that thing that, well, we got when we were watching on, you you know, TNT, USA, movies yeah. in the middle of the afternoon, watching Goodfellas for, you know, ran for five hours with commercials in the middle of the afternoon and everything <laughs> is all chopped up. All the, the words don't seem quite right. You know, you know, they're not saying fudge. <laughs> <laughs> they need to bring that back. All these movies released in, in a certain decade or decades. They need to include the edited for TV version. Uh, yeah, they that's that's to. a pretty cool a pretty cool move to include that on the the 4K Blu-ray of RoboCop, which you can pick mm. up now from Arrow Video. Arrow, call us. I would like to shout out one film that is, you know, an older film that is coming out in uh, theaters this week with this re-release is Mississippi Masala, Mira Nair's 1991 film. It was unavailable for a really long time just because of like rights issues. I. I've been watching it on this old DVD that I got from eBay for like $100 for like $100 years ago. And that's the only way that I've been able to see it forever. But now Janus Films and Criterion have put together this gorgeous 4K restoration that premiered at New York Film Festival last year. And it starts playing at IFC Center this week and will be kind of expanding from there before coming out on Criterion on Blu-ray and DVD next month. The film is just this really gorgeous tale of an interracial relationship between Denzel Washington and a very sweet and sexy early role for him. And he's paired up with Sarita Shadhori in her first film role. The Mm. two of them just developed this romance. It's honestly some of the best chemistry I've ever seen in a film. There is a phone call scene that I have numerous times declared on Twitter as being the sexiest scene in film history. I stand by it. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend everybody check it out. And from beyond that too, you know, the, the romance, the interracial aspect of the romance brings up all these kind of nuanced conversations about a relationship between a black man and a brown woman around that time. Their families might, you know, not be super supportive of it. And it's all stuff that is still very relevant today, very it feels rare to see a film like that. Even today, you wouldn't see mm. films quite like this. And to know that, I mean, this is made 30 years ago. It's really striking. And I definitely highly recommend everybody checking that out when you get the chance to see it. I just added it to my watch list. You have it as five stars on Letterboxd. Maybe the reason- I have it as five stars. You have it, yeah. It's five, another, that's your second five banger of this episode, including Petit Mama. I'm throwing them out. <laughs> Giving them out like candy right now. <laughs> Secrets of Dumbledore, watch out. <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe the reason people didn't check out this movie is because of that old poster that used to be the uh, mm. main <laughs> the main deterrent that was on for a little while. But thankfully, with this release, we have a gorgeous new poster. Gorgeous new poster from Janice, yeah. Before we get to your next uh, thing from the re- recent week, I do want to call out Ambulance's you know, we're checking back on Ambulance how to do last week. 3.2 average on Litterbox right now. Sonic the Hedgehog, 3.4. So creeping above. And then uh, I don't agree with this at all. If I can be <laughs> frank, all the old knives, 2.8 average. Criminal. It's uh, so, Something's happened. I need to dig into the data. I think something screwy is going on with those numbers. They're doing, I think it's a, I'm pretty sure it's a campaign against you. I'm pretty sure I saw that. <laughs> Take down Slim. Hashtag take down Slim. It's happening. I'm sick of it. And uh, Tony Hawk's documentary 3.7 average on HBO Max right now. So what what, any other physical releases this week? Yeah, I I would love to shout out, you know, come on, come on. Mike Mills film comes out on or came out on Blu-ray and DVD this week. And as anybody knows of Mike Mills work from beginners and 20th century women, he's just such a humanist filmmaker. So in tune with emotions and feelings. When I interviewed him for Letterboxd Journal last year, he specifically said, Feelings are my genre, which, you know, was a very spur of the moment quote, but it feels almost like this like anthem, like this mantra for Mike Mills as a filmmaker that he really just taps into those feelings and gets at the heart of these characters and really transfers those emotions to people. He's one of those guys who I think captures the same thing that, you know, I felt with Petit Maman, this idea of taking something so specific and it being so personal it translates to this almost universal feeling of us feeling like these movies were made specifically for us. And I definitely felt that with Come On, Come On and Mike Mills films as well. So I would definitely just want to say for anybody to watch, you know, Come On, Come On, if you haven't seen it yet, revisit it if you've already seen it, pick it up on, you know, the Blu-ray or the DVD. And, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe check out that interview on Journal if you want. I don't know. (laughs) We'll link to it in the episode. It's great interview. And that quote from him in that interview, uh, that solidified the viewing experience for Come On, Come On. And I was kind of pissed off that that didn't get nominated for any Oscars. It's, yeah, I mean, what what a shame. What are you Sickening. doing, Oscars? Sickening. Oscar, wake up. <laughs> now, usually we talk about our top 50 movies uh, weekly list that Jack updates. Jack's, Jack's on a well-deserved vacation, and there hasn't been a lot of changes to the big list this week. You know, everything, everywhere, all at once is the new number one everywhere, and it still remains, so... <laughs> Let's shift to our watch list. We're rapidly running out of time before we have to start refunding money back for <laughs> this episode. Uh, please, please, uh, please, no. <laughs> when last we met, you shuffled your watch list and you got Ghosts of Mars, John Carpenter. So I'm ready to hear all about Ghosts of Mars right now. Oh, Slim. I watched Ghosts of Mars the other night at about one o'clock in the morning, which I think is the appropriate time to watch <laughs> a film like Ghosts of Mars. And I'll say... Choices were made in in this movie. It <laughs> it's a very interesting movie. It you know came out in early two thousands. It feels very of the early two thousands era. I read you know in reading up about it after watching it, I had read that there were kind of these like rumors around that it was originally intended to be a follow up in the Snake Plissken uh, series. Mm. You know the Kurt Russell Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. John Carpenter movies, which I think was disproven that that's not actually true. But it does feel like it could fit within that mold. It's definitely a John Carpenter movie at its core, even if it has kind of these Mm -hmm. corny CGI graphics. The cast isn't the best cast in the world at delivering certain kinds of dialogue. It's, It's very corny, but it still has that Carpenter that carpenter kind of cheese that I really love. Mm-hmm. The, the same kind of thing that you can feel in something like a RoboCop where 
it's there's almost like a a hominess to it like it feels like a a warm blanket being wrapped mm-hmm. around you in the way that they're doing it and i mean carpenter is just a guy who is always going to be good there he's one of those directors who no matter what he's doing even if it's not the best thing in the world he's such like a visual stylist he has such a keen eye for music and yeah. visuals that i feel like everything's worth watching and you know i would say that I have the same feeling as I do towards Carpenter as somebody like Brian De Palma, who mm. directed your watch list pick, Dress to Kill. What did you Dress think about that to one? Dress to Kill. You know, I started it, I think right after we recorded, I fired it up right. and I needed to stop and I'll come back to this. <laughs> <laughs> and I love De Palma. I love Snake Eyes. That's one of my favorite mm. movies. You know, his control of the camera in that movie, mm-hmm. you know, it gives me the hot sweats. <laughs> watching that thing with with Nicolas Cage rolling around. But it's actually similar. To, I, I watched American Gigolo recently, and there's actually movie. Some, almost some crossover happening in the plot of that movie. But Nancy Allen, my dear, sweet Nancy Allen from RoboCop is in this movie, and she's great. Uh, Michael Caine is in it, Angie Dickinson. So you had alluded to how, you know, some of the storyline points and some of the, the topics in this movie, you know, maybe wouldn't work today. So yeah. going in, there is some trans conversations that happen. This is 1980. Yeah. They even play like clips from a Phil Donahue episode where he's interviewing uh, a woman and about her experience going through this. And the whole time, I was like 40 years ago. So there are some points in this movie that just made me feel kind of like, wow, this doesn't really hold up anymore. Yeah. Um, so I did try to do some reading on Letterboxd to try to educate myself on what some members of our community thought. And some pieces of uh, criticism on the movie. So I don't know what. Have you watched this recently? Do you have any vibes on on how this holds up over time? I did. I didn't get the chance to watch it again recently. So the last time I saw it was probably about ten years ago. And yeah, my 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 memory of it is really that idea of feeling like the some of the problematic elements just stuck in my craw a little bit too mm-hmm. much, a little bit more than some of his other movies, um, and feeling like products of their time or products of De Palma playing with kind of these tropes of horror movies. You know, Hitchcock kind of got into that realm a little bit too as well. And De Palma obviously owes so much to Hitchcock. But it is, I mean, he's such an undeniable stylist that there's still so much to gain from watching a movie like this, even if it is just the way that he moves the camera or, you know, his particular like lens choices and what he does with color. That is so interesting that I think at least makes it worth watching even if the those kind of stickier elements mm-hmm. you know hold it back a little bit from being one of my favorite De Palmas by any means I mean Carlito's Way is one of my all-time favorite movies I watched that when I worked at a video store and that just stuck with me forever I love Al Pacino I mean Brian De Palma's filmography is nutty I mean Blowout Blowout and Body Double are two of my all-time favorites Femme Fatale oh The Untouchables Carrie? Carrie? Uh, <laughs> The the octave that you just hit, my Carrie? dog just like my dog's ears just went sideways. Uh, yeah, a lot of films. So De Palma is undeniable talent. Uh, so product of its time for sure. So I think it's time for us to shuffle again. Let's do it. What's what's gonna be next for our our next episode together? Let me head to my watch list right now. Filter by stream only, and I will sort by shuffle. Andre Tarkovsky. Ever heard of him? I'm a big Andre Tarkovsky fan. <laughs> <laughs> the Sacrifice, 1986. That is what I just got, and that is uh, streaming on Canopy right now. 
Alexander, a journalist, philosopher, and retired actor, celebrates a birthday with friends and family when it's announced that nuclear war has begun. I don't even remember adding this to my watch list, to be honest <laughs> with you. So that's my that's my movie for next time we meet. I have gotten maybe the most polar opposite from Tarkovsky as you can. It's not quite Ghosts of Mars, but my pick for this episode is Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> John Patrick Shanley's <laughs> adventure comedy starring Tom Hanks and the one and only Meg Ryan from 1990. For people who aren't familiar with Joe versus the Volcano, the plot is described as hypochondriac Joe Banks finds out he has six months to live. Rutrow quits his dead-end job, musters the courage to ask his coworker out on a date, and is then hired to jump into a volcano by a mysterious visitor. I mean, it sounds like I'm in for a pretty fun watch, I have to say. Well, I hope you enjoy it, because I'll be watching The Sacrifice from 1986. Andre, don't steer me, don't steer me wrong, Andre. Andre? I love Solaris. Love Solaris. He's, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, but nobody, weirdly enough, nobody going into a volcano in any of his movies. You kind of think maybe somebody would. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Weekend Watchlist brought to you by The Letterbox Show. You can follow Mitchell, Slim, that's me, and our HQ page on Letterbox using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew and thanks to Letterboxd member Trent Walton for the theme music, Eyes On. Thanks to Jack for the facts, not exactly on this episode, and Sophie Shin for the episode transcript. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Weekend Watch This is a Tape Deck production. This, this, this is a Tape Deck podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you.